Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. I had never been directly confronted with racism towards myself. I had witnessed it. I had felt it on the peripheries of my life. And I remember just kind of sitting there and being kind of jolted out of my body and and knowing that this was a defining moment in my life. Welcome to this episode of The Lonely Hour, in which George McCallman, an artist and a graphic designer, a Black artist and graphic designer, shares his story. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. You know me. I have a lot of feelings. That's partly why I do this show about one of them, loneliness. But I've never felt the loneliness of otherness in the way that George did in the moment he just started to describe. Our awareness of an ism can lead to loneliness. And in George's case, that ism was racism. After living much of his life in New York City feeling part of the community, he suddenly felt like an outsider because of an episode at a magazine where he worked in his 20s. It taught me a lot, but it was also the first place that I had overt racism directed at me. And I had been very kind of cloistered up until then. And it really kind of shook me into the ways of the world. And the fact that I was a black person moving through an industry that, you know, doesn't have, I would say graphic design and design doesn't have a ton of sensitivity around racial differences. You just kind of get on board to the way that things are done. Literally started out at the bottom of, I was an intern and then I became the art assistant and I was hungry. So I spent a lot of my off time coming in and working with and reworking layouts just for my own betterment. I was really excited to do more. I was doing a lot of single pages in the magazine and I wanted to do more departments and more features. So I came into practice and on a particular Saturday, um, I was working in what was then uh, the scanning room. And one of my coworkers, who was a protege of our boss in the art department, came in also, and he wanted to use the scanning machine. And so we went back and forth, and you know, I, and I held my ground, saying, you know, I was I was there, and I was going to take some time, and I'd be leaving in an hour. And I received an email from him that I've saved to this day, uh, telling me that I was there out of a quota system and I needed to know my place and that I should not bite the hand that was feeding me. And it was just in a very straightforward way. I have described it as an awakening where you feel like you're seeing the world through new eyes for the first time, but it's been there all along. It's like your veil of innocence uh, fades away and you just realize the world that you're living in that so many of these conversations happen 
behind closed doors. And I remember just feeling like, um, like a little frozen in time. I mean, were you scared? I wasn't scared myself. It was just more like, what am I supposed to do about this? Whenever I'm in the midst of a crisis, I always go inside my head. I always think about what I could do better. And, and that's just me. That's just the way my brain is wired. That's a byproduct of racism also. Like you think that somehow you are at fault for someone else's craziness. Say you knew you had to do something. What, what was it that you decided to do ultimately? Coincidentally, it was uh, two white women that I went to that I trusted as friends. One uh, was from Brazil and the other is from New Orleans. And two very soulful women that I remain very, very close to to this day that I was just kind of like, I trusted to take this to them and their outrage was immediate. And so I'm really appreciative of that because it made me feel like I wasn't crazy. You know, the other byproduct of racism is that black people don't have, cannot express their anger uh, publicly. And so there's a whole generation, many generations, that we restrain ourselves. And, and it's, I think it's wired in our body right now, of this trauma that we have to be cagey. You know, we can express that with each other, but we cannot express that with people outside of our race because we have to be careful. Sam wasn't just racist on his own. There was a system that protected him, that he'd been working there for years and was able to conduct all sorts of bad, bad behavior because he was protected and he was protected by the person who ran our department and who also had some of those opinions himself. So I knew that it was going to affect me and it was going to affect me really. I was going to pay for it. I took a day to think about it, and then I, I felt it in my belly. I knew it was that this was an opportunity for me to act, and that I was also getting an opportunity that lots of other people didn't have. Like, I was just kind of thinking very openly about this, and I was like, this is a kind of an open and shut case. There's no nuance. Like, his own words have incriminated him, and I don't even have to say much. And so I knew that, basically, that the law was going to protect me. And I ended up talking to a lawyer. I decided to go through with it. And I took it to HR on Monday morning. And I always remember the woman's face. She smiled at me when she read. I, I took the printout in and I said, I walked into her office. I knocked the door. I closed the door. And I said, I, I, really, I want to talk to you about something. And she read it. And she smiled at me. She's like, we've been waiting for this. And, and it was this like warm smile where I knew that this was something that was even greater than me. And I knew that it was an open and shut case. And Sam, I believe, was fired that day. And he had to clear out his, his stuff. And I remember him walking past me and he stared at me like, I'm going to kill you. You know, just kind of like walking by. And I felt, I felt that procession. I was like, yeah, this is what people have experienced this a lot. This like sense of this, this will, this like righteous anger. I was like, this man said this to me and he's going to walk away feeling like I betrayed him. 
Like, that's some kind of, that's a certain kind of crazy right there. Were you scared that he was going to come after you outside of the walls of the office? No. No, I was scared that Rudy was going to come after me because I knew that that was the real pecking order here. And, and he did. He did come after me. So he called me into his office, closed the door, and it was an office that was glass. And, and he, part of how he displayed his power is that he would close the door and then yell at you. And so everyone passing by would witness. And so you knew that you were being shamed in front of the department too. Um, and so that's, that's what he did. He called me in and he shut the door and he said, I want to tell you something. In my day, you would take a man out and you would have a fist fight when you had a disagreement. And real men, they air their differences in person. And he said, I don't like that you went over my head. To, and, he, and he saw it as an offense to himself that I had, I had done this. And said nothing about we should have talked about it. He was just pissed that I, that I had gone over his head. And he said, from now on, I'm watching you like a hawk. And all of those things that you were excited to do in this department, you are not going to be able to do them because you have to reprove yourself to me. And I knew, I was like, this man is going to suck the soul out of my body. <laughs> and I, I remember knowing it. I was like, this, is, this man is going to terrorize me. And I'm going to be forced to quit because I'm going to be the subject of this man's ire for the remainder of the time that I'm here. And so I remember walking out just feeling completely dispirited that I had been blamed for someone else's racism. George went on to work at another magazine. Then, a friend called him up from San Francisco. There was an opportunity there. And this was a city George had once visited and loved. He was going to take on the role of art director at another magazine. He packed up and went to the West Coast, never having done something so spontaneous in his life. It's not necessarily the kind of racial and social and cultural diversity that I was used to in New York. It's been a really interesting thing for me to think about diversity in a slightly different way living out here. I, I think you don't really have a choice. I made a list right before I moved out here 17 years ago, and I remember writing down, I don't want to be the only black person in a room. I remember writing that down, and it was a con for moving out to San Francisco. You step on a subway car, you step in a room anywhere in New York, and there is the joy of being one of 17 people that look like you. And I, I see that as a joy. Um, out here, I didn't want to be the representative. And I, I still feel like I am, and it's still a con for living in San Francisco. And that's one of the reasons that a few years ago, I was like, I have to get even more dedicated about finding people that look like me, that have my same cultural references and touchstones, that we speak the same language. I don't always feel like I speak the same language of the people that I interact with on a daily basis out here. And part of it is that I grew up on the East Coast and I'm from the Caribbean. And those cultural references are not, you don't find that in abundance out here. So I understand why I don't speak the same language, but I got really annoyed 
with feeling like an outlier in my own city. I am an adjunct professor at CCA and I've taught graphic design for the last couple of years. And we had a faculty meeting about race. And it was really interesting to watch who spoke and it was interesting to watch who didn't. And one of the professors said, you know, I don't really understand why this is necessary, a necessary conversation to have. And it's one of those things where I've heard that so often out here, I don't even get upset about it. But it was I was really happy that other people did. And one professor said so eloquently, she said, graphic design appropriates from other cultures all the time. We are the people who should be having this conversation to understand how race affects our industry because it actually does. It actually, it has a lot to say, um, all of it, race, class, gender, that we actually should be leading these kinds of conversations. And I remember thinking, I've never heard it said so beautifully, but that's actually how I have always felt. But I've always felt like an outlier. And being a black person, reminding everyone else that they should be talking about race gets a little old after a while. I mean, being the person to have to do that, it gets it's annoying to have to do that, to remind especially white people why it's necessary, why you should be talking about race, why you should be thinking about race. Because that's the world that we're living in. And it's the world that we've, certainly American culture, it's the foundation of American culture. So, you know, it's disingenuous to say, if, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it, that's real. That's what you have to own and that's what you have to work through. But acting as though it's not a part of our culture, that's not a part of our industry, I think is irresponsible. At the faculty meeting, I was like, I'm not interested in being the representative for anyone here about what they need to know or not know uh, about this topic. It's like, all you have to do is either be interested or own uh, your fear and say, I don't know how to talk about this. But what I'm not going to do is take your hand and lead you through this process because that's not my job. But what I feel like is my job is to express what I see in the world through my work. And in, in a weird way, the last couple of years of, of creating work on my own has taught me that I have a way of expressing that to myself. And if I can do that for myself, then I can put it out into the world. And then people are either free to interact with it or ignore it, you know? But I, I've figured out a way, living in this city, to comment on what I see. And a lot of my work is political, which I'm not sure I would have uh, been aware of a few years ago. I feel like I've come into my sense of myself in the last couple of years. I feel like my perspective is necessary in the city right now. Now in his 40s, George feels a need to express his sense of otherness through his work, and he's found a way. I am in the midst of this evolution in my work, my life, my career, my creativity, my 
professional life are all going through this very acute transformation. And race is becoming a real, real anchor. I have a friend, Ebony Haight, who is a uh, writer and content strategist. And she had done a series the year before, and it was she had taken image stock uh, archival footage from Pinterest and, and just various sources and profiled a lot of people not uh, well-known in Black history, like really obscure. Uh, and I was just riveted by it. And I remember thinking, oh, man, this would be amazing as a book. So much of our history is not known. And there's a lack of interest from publishers to publish. It's like a million cookbooks all saying the same thing, but, you know, Simon Schuster is not putting out a book on Black history, and I'm, I'm offended by that, personally. And so, a year ago, I was thinking about it, and I thought, oh, it'd be cool to paint this, you know? So we started the project, and I ended up finishing it on my own. We were talking a few weeks ago about doing something, like what would be the next version of that? And in the course of our conversation, it came up that, you know, we're also in an age where it's no longer just about the past, honoring the past. We're very much right now a community that is emerging for the first time, understanding our value collectively. And so the idea of what Black means, there's not a Black person that is not having this conversation. And so we wanted to take it from the past to the present and discuss what is what is being black? You know, Ebony is a black woman who's adopted and raised by a white family. I am a black man living in America who is a citizen, but wasn't born in this country. So we're still outsiders. We're outsiders in our own community, and we're also outsiders in America. As comfortable as we feel being here, we're also aware that we're seen as outsiders. And so we wanted to open up that line of questioning to just everyday people. And so I am illustrating portraits for each person. And some of them are in our network and some of them are strangers. And so it's an interesting cross-section of people who, from different walks of life, that are talking to us about what this means. The series George is referring to there is called Black in America, and you can find his illustrations by going to Ebony Hate's profile on Medium. She's Ebony H at E-B-O-N-Y-H. Tell us what you think. You can email me at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Lonely Podcast, or you can find me on the Lonely Hours Facebook page. And sign up for our newsletter at thelonelyhour.com, and you'll be the first to know when the next episode drops. Until then, enjoy yourself. The listening booth. Certainly make me think twice. There's a story inside.